0: Can the city of Huntsville continue moving forward with community conversations about last summer's downtown social justice protest, which triggered a violent defensive stance by local law enforcement? A new public report is out and another is on the way. We'll talk with City Councilman Bill Kling.
1: When things come out, uh, both from the Citizens Advisory Committee as well as uh, the report that I've been able to compile with these eight outstanding citizens, I think there's gonna be some very positive changes that'll take place.
0: Dr. Neil Lamb with Hudson Alpha also answers all my latest COVID vaccine questions.
2: They likely have somewhere between an 80 and 90 percent efficacy at keeping people from passing on the virus if they themselves have been infected.
0: And Huntsville's space line looks different at the moment. There's no Pathfinder.
3: Well, you remember the the line from Jaws where they needed a bigger boat. We needed a bigger crane. That thing was heavy.
0: The Public Radio Hour produced in the studios of 89.3 Huntsville is coming up next. Greetings. Thanks so much for tuning in to Public Radio Hour here on 89.3 in Huntsville. I'm your host tonight, Brett Tannehill. All sorts of great interviews, conversations, and sounds to enjoy coming up in the next hour. We'll pay a visit to the Alabama State Choral Championships, which occurred at the Von Brown Center here in Huntsville. We'll also talk with Pat Ammons at the U.S. Space and Rocket Center about Pathfinder and other things going on. City Councilman Bill Kling has a conversation with producer Katie Gannaway about the Huntsville Police Citizens Advisory Council report that's just been released. We'll hear from Councilman Kling on what he expects the responses to be. But first, let's touch base with our good friend, Dr. Neil Lamb, Vice President of Educational Outreach at the Hudson Alpha Institute for Biotechnology. Dr. Lamb and I recently spoke, and he was gracious enough to answer all my latest COVID vaccine questions. Let's start with a refresher on what is herd immunity. This is something, Dr. Lamb, that you and I discussed around this time last year. Refresh us on the correct definition of herd immunity and tell us how the current vaccination effort is pushing us in this direction.
2: Herd immunity is the idea that enough people now are immune to the SARS-CoV-2 virus that it becomes very difficult for the virus to easily jump from person to person. So it's sort of like a set of shields that um, individuals have that makes it more difficult for the virus to gain a foothold and then spread. You can get this immunity one of two ways. You can either have had a SARS-CoV-2 uh, infection and recovered, and so you've got natural immunity, or you can have vaccine-induced immunity where the vaccine specifically primes your immune system to be on the lookout for and to defend against infection from the SARS-CoV-2 virus.
0: Is one better than the other? Is it known?
2: That's a great question. Um, Ideally, uh, you would expect that having natural immunity and vaccine-induced immunity would both give you an appropriate level. But what we've actually found is that for people that have recovered naturally from a SARS-CoV-2 infection, there's a pretty wide range of the strength of their immune response. Uh, I saw a paper that came out a couple of weeks ago that suggests that most individuals who have recovered naturally from an infection have a pretty robust response for, you know, so far, as long as we've been tracking them so far, up to seven months. But there are a number of individuals that have very low immune response. Uh, and so some folks who especially might have been asymptomatic may not have built up a strong immune system. It's a pretty consistently strong immune response with the vaccine, which is why you're seeing the CDC recommend that even people who have recovered from COVID-19 still consider getting a vaccination because it uh, raises that level kind of to a uniform response.
0: So tell us a little bit more about the, this vaccine or the various vaccines uh, that are out there. Uh, it's not a live virus. Is that correct?
2: The, vi- the vaccines that have been approved here in America do not use live virus. They, they don't use um, weakened or dead virus. Some of the vaccines in other parts of the world have gone down that road. That's a more traditional approach. The vaccines that have been approved for emergency use authorization in America are um, all of them target the spike protein, which is that now iconic uh, spike that sits on the outside of the virus that helps it attach and dock with human cells. So all of the vaccines are designed to create an immune response against that spike protein so that if you do get infected, your immune system recognize it, recognizes it uh brings antibodies to the table that bind that protein to keep it from being able to connect with your human cells. And then if you do get infected, trigger a response to identify and destroy those infected cells. So all three vaccines, whether you're talking about Pfizer BioNTech, Moderna, or Johnson & Johnson, although they use slightly different approaches, all trigger that immunity against the spike protein.
0: Is there any particular reason that the vaccinations or the vaccines here in America have that same shared approach to this, uh, as you said, attacking that spike protein?
2: Really, almost all the vaccines around the world uh, that, are in, that are, have been approved or in clinical development all made the common conscious decision to go after the spike protein. So it pretty much has been everybody working along those same lines.
0: And the concerns about the Johnson & Johnson shot, I got mine about two or three days before uh, the the news broke that they were sort of halting vaccinations using that, but it was a a very small number of people who had blood clots and other problems. What are the concerns exactly with the Johnson & Johnson shot, uh, and what do you expect to happen with that?
2: The Johnson & Johnson shot, when they were going through the clinical trials, one individual out of the, I think, 20,000 people that received the vaccine had a really unusual uh, set of clotting conditions where they had an unusual type of blood clot and they also didn't have a lot of platelets. Their platelets are involved in clotting and their platelet levels were really low. That was found in the clinical trials and investigators said, we need to follow this. We need to be on the lookout for this. And so the traditional um, safety and awareness part of of the vaccine program has been closely tracking this. Last week, they identified, uh, I believe it was at at that time, six women um, under the age, I believe, of 50 who had also had these really rare uh, clots, sometimes often uh, brain clots, and then these low platelets. So that was about six women out of almost 7 million vaccines, and one of those women actually passed away. And so that triggered, when they found that, that triggered the, let's put this on pause, Let's look at the data and let's gather some additional information and see if this might be a very, very rare but serious side effect of the vaccine. So that's where we are right now. We're in this pause point. Uh, the individuals that had the clots all developed them within two weeks after getting their vaccine. So we're in this waiting period since they put the vaccines on, the Johnson & Johnson vaccine on pause to see if any other cases come to the table. And I think what will likely happen is that they will identify that this is a really rare, maybe one in 600, 500,000 cases. Like you said, um,
0: six out of seven million. In, in this, exactly. Right. And
2: so even if we have a few more that come in, you know, let, let's say that it's one out of 500,000. It's a serious side effect. It's very rare. Along the order of the anaphylaxis, the, the severe allergic reaction that we saw with the Moderna and the Pfizer vaccines. And then I think what they'll do is they will they may identify certain audiences that they would recommend not take this vaccine, but I don't think that you're going to see them cut this vaccine out entirely. It has really significant benefit. It's a one-dose vaccine. It doesn't have to be kept at those super cold temperatures, but I think they'll just look for ways to try to reduce what is already a really low risk
0: how do you compare or how would you compare the similarities or differences between the COVID vaccine and the flu vaccine that they encourage people to get every year?
2: The flu vaccine generally is somewhere between 40 and 60% effective in any given year. So it's a, it is um, not, it is valuable. It is useful, but it is not necessarily a super effective uh, vaccine. Um, in contrast, all three of the vaccines that have been given emergency use authorization here in America are a much higher efficacy level than that. And they all are really effective at preventing serious um, hospital-inducing COVID-19. So even the people that have been vaccinated and then go on to develop COVID-19, which is a really small fraction, but even those people have a much less serious case. So these COVID-19 vaccines are really effective at what they do, keeping people out of the hospital, and also they likely have somewhere between an 80 and 90% efficacy at keeping people from passing on the virus if they themselves have been infected.
0: What are the chances that health officials start encouraging people to start getting annual COVID vaccines, similar to flu shots, as they're still learning how long uh, the protection will last from each vaccination? What, what is the thinking on that? Is this a, a one time vaccination or something that might need boosters along the way?
2: Brett, I think that's a great question that we don't yet have enough data to answer. Uh, it is possible that we may find that this one vaccine has a long enough, a long lasting. Um, Efficacy and that we can get a handle on the virus spread and reach herd immunity, and we don't need additional shots. It's also possible that we'll need some sort of booster, either because the virus will have changed enough that we need something that is now effective at whatever new strain is circulating, much like you see with the flu vaccine, um, or we will have reached a point that maybe you need it, maybe it's annually, maybe it's every two or three years. We just don't have enough data yet to figure that out.
0: We t- we talked about the Johnson & Johnson shot a moment ago, which is uh, the one that I had. Katie Ganaway, one of our producers, actually got her shot Uh, about 30 minutes after me at the same location both of us had uh, side effects after the shot I had a lot of body aches uh, really bad Katie had uh, more flu-like symptoms uh, that sort of thing Uh, Dr. Lamb what is happening in our bodies when we get that second shot or or that vaccination and we start to have that reaction Uh, what are we feeling our bodies do in response to what's going on?
2: Those side effects are a sign that you are generating an immune response, that your body recognizes that there is something different going on and is building up um, some immunity against it to call on, if necessary, later on. So those flu-like symptoms, some folks have a headache, uh, the arm pain, all of those are part of your body's natural response. Not everybody has that, and if you don't have that, that doesn't mean you aren't building an immune response. But if you do feel that, it isn't cause for concern, especially because it generally goes away within about 24 hours. Now, if it lasts longer than that or if it's seriously painful, then, yes, you want to circle back with your physician. But in general, these are known and fully expected side effects that just tell us that the vaccine is doing its job.
0: And finally, let's assume that we have been successfully vaccinated and successfully stayed COVID-free for the two weeks after our final shot. Uh, Dr. Lamb, what can we do now? We're protected for, for, for how long? What can we do? Can we be around other people? Can we get people sick? You sort of alluded this to this earlier, but tell us what we can do now.
2: Once you've been fully vaccinated, you've passed your, your two-week window, pa- past your first shot if it's Johnson & Johnson, or your second shot if it's an mRNA vaccine like Moderna and Pfizer. Once you're past that point, the CDC has now said you can, uh, you can gather with other vaccinated people without masks. Uh, they've said that you can gather with people from who are unvaccinated from one other household without masks. Uh, they have not said that you can take your mask off and run freely through crowds. Uh, I, I think <laughs> Please, that's a no, bad idea. No, yeah, That is a bad idea. And I know that some people are like, why should I get vaccinated if I can't take my mask off? You can take your mask off in lower risk and even, you know, in, in those settings. But at this point, You don't want to be in large, crowded groups where the virus is potentially present. It's not a 100% effective vaccine. We've got the data that suggests it's really good at um, keeping you from getting sick and even slowing the spread, but again, that's not 100%. And as we see, especially in communities where the virus is rampant, where it's really high, you still want to keep that mask on. Plus, it's a nice... it's It's a mark of... Southern hospitality, from my perspective, and I am keeping other people safe, and I am reminding them this is part of what we need to be doing to keep each other safe. Now, as we move through the year, I think you're going to see even more things that vaccinated people are able to do as the body of science, uh, as the evidence body continues to accumulate.
0: Well, just speaking for myself, I definitely plan to continue wearing a mask when I go into the grocery store and that sort of thing. Uh, And like you said, it's not necessarily for me. It's out of consideration for other people. But I will say I did not get sick one single time last year. No flu, no nothing. And it led me to really wonder about how much all this handshaking and uh, (laughs) things that we sort of traditionally and, and, and culturally do has really been spreading germs through the population.
2: We, as a society, uh, spread germs frequently. You know, high school uh, biology classes often do some sort of simulation where they put a a glow-in-the-dark lotion on one person's hands, and then they go throughout the day and they see how many people end up with that on their noses and on their faces and on everybody else's hands. It's just been what we we do. We are a very uh, touch-conscious and close-knit society. I think this may cause us to rethink some of those practices, not to try to keep us away from being together, you know, we're meant to be in community, but being more mindful and respectful of when we're sick, putting on a mask and minimizing the contact that we have with others. It's going to be really exciting. New vaccines are already in the early stage of development. Vaccines that you might be able to um, inhale through your nose, like an allergy mist in your nose, or Vaccines that might actually give you even longer-lasting protection. That's early, but I think this push this year to move vaccinations, to put so much energy and emphasis on it, is going to yield huge benefits for society down the road.
0: That was Dr. Neil Lamb, Vice President for Educational Outreach at the Hudson Alpha Institute for Biotechnology. You're listening to the Public Radio Hour, produced in the studios of listener-supported 89.3 WLRH. You can find a podcast of tonight's show, including all the interviews and sound, at WLRH.org. Look under Programs for the Public Radio Hour. Still to come in this show, a conversation with Huntsville City Councilman Bill Kling, also a visit to the Alabama State Coral Championships. But next, let's train our gaze on Huntsville's space line and notice that things are a bit different these days, especially over at the U.S. Basin Rocket Center. The Pathfinder shuttle replica is now on the ground and in pieces. Pat Ammons with the U.S. Basin Rocket Center stopped by to give us the latest on what's going on.
3: We're looking at this as a long-term project. We knew that it would be from the very get-go. Something we had planned to start in 2020, early 2020, we had the money set aside to work on Pathfinder. COVID hit. Money went to just keeping the doors open and operations. So we had to offset the process a little bit uh, or a lot until we could move forward after we kind of stabilized after the Huge impact that uh, COVID nineteen and the shutdowns had on us. And this
0: is no small process. Give us an idea, kind of refresh us on the the current state of Pathfinder and right. what it took to actually get it off the off the post into the ground.
3: Right. Well, you remember the the line from Jaws where they needed a bigger boat. We needed a bigger crane. That thing was heavy, and it took a lot more than uh, you know. First, the just the structural analysis of something that had been in the air for hadn't been seen for 35 years yeah Yeah, it was it was constructed you know just a little history of what pathfinder is it was a test article it was a um one that uh, nasa used to move it around bring it through the doors of the vehicle assembly building down at the cape and uh you know, roll it around, move it around, before they started doing that with multi billion dollar orbiters. So, this is a process that NASA frequently does it builds a Pathfinder model to do some of that structural and logistics testing. So, that's what Pathfinder was. It was basically a metal structure with some shell around it. Back in the 80s, uh, the America-Japan Society uh, took it to Japan, reconfigured it to look more like a shuttle, built out the wings, built out a rear stabilizer, put an actual cone on the front of it to look like a a cockpit. And that's what we've had on display. Uh, It was in Japan for a period of time for a space shuttle exposition, came back to the US in mid-80s, came to the rocket center, about 1986 and was mounted on that stack that we're also familiar with in 1989 so it had been up there for 30 plus years and 32, yeah, 30 yeah 32 years yeah. and right. you know we know what the weather is like here it's cold in the winter cold and wet in the winter it's hot and wet in the summer it had taken its toll on the uh, additions that had been made to the structure so We knew we needed to get it down structurally, it was starting to deteriorate, so first we had to analyze all those lift points. Uh, How heavy was it? Fine, turns out it was heavier than we even thought it was, hence the bigger crane. Uh, Multi-month, multi-month process to even figure out how to lift it and get it down. We had great contractors we worked with, got it down to the ground a couple of months ago, since that time we uh, stripped it all the way back down to the bare metal structure so if you come out to the rocket center right now you'll see um, some people are comparing it to an armadillo. Uh, it looks like various, uh, uh, a little hard to uh, envision it as it was Description. Yeah. You know. <laughs> an armadillo on the side of the road.
0: People listening, perhaps not in the south, are like, I don't know uh, what What, do, that what is, what is that?
3: Uh, yes, yeah, so it's kind of a, a, a shadow of its former self, but it is the, the interior structure that was the original test article.
0: Okay, so Pathfinder down temporarily, you're working on it. Something else down temporarily is the spark camp, so no robotic Camp. Space Camp open at half capacity, half strength. What's going on with Space
3: Camp? We're bringing back. So last summer we were, uh, of course, we, you know, with COVID, everything changed. And so last summer we opened up Space Camp only for two months.
0: And and just to, to rewind, that was a devastating blow for the Rocket Center. That's like a huge chunk of your revenue, Space Camp. You were fully booked, full booking on Space Camp and all the all that is suddenly gone and refunded
3: right we were we were planning on having about a thousand children a week which is our standard ordinary normal summer uh crazy busy uh, we ended up operating about 200 to 250 students a week. So a good three-fourths of our students and therefore three-fourths of the revenue that supports not just um, the program, but Everything our staff else, and yeah. all the rest of it was gone. Uh, of course, the center closed for two months. When we reopened, it was at um, marginal uh, attendance because people weren't traveling. People weren't um, weren't out and about. But and
0: now you say you're, you're cranked back up and, and, and space camp at half capacity.
4: This
3: right. Summer. So knowing... Going into the spring, uh, knowing that things would, that certainly COVID wasn't going away and knowing that health orders would still be in place, we made the decision pretty early on to operate at 50% this year. We knew there were going to be a lot of students, particularly our international students, wouldn't be able to travel to see us this year. And that's a big part of our program. So we are reopening. We are reopening on May 23rd. Uh, with close to 500 students so we'll be operating at about 50 percent
0: so how, how long did it take to book at half capacity oh
3: uh, we are we are so uh, we are so booked we have a waiting list so you
0: could you if you had felt safe you could have gone oh full
3: no question it, it, the, the demand is huge we have children uh, all over the world who uh, would love to be here this summer unfortunately just the conditions We knew staffing up for full capacity would be a real challenge because of all the things that are still going on with COVID. We also knew we couldn't get the students here from around the world like we would typically do. So making that decision early on to stay at 50 percent. But there's no question.
0: But that allowed you to plan and and like, here's what we're going to attempt to do. At least we can do this. Right.
3: Right. Putting Space Camp on is a major operation. I mean, typically we'll have, uh, you know, we'll still already have about 200 people working in our Space Camp program. So, you know, you are talking about housing children for overnight, all week long, feeding them all three meals, making sure they're safe, making sure they're learning, having a great time while they're doing it. And that just takes a lot of personnel.
0: So a lot of other things at the Rocket Center are also ramping back up. You're here today to record some new PSAs. Mm, yes, indeed. So let's kind of this is the the latest news at the at the Rocket Center. So so walk us through uh, the, the PSAs that we're doing today. One of them is for a traveling exhibit mm-hmm. from the Intrepid Sea, Air, and Space Museum and the Imagine exhibits. It's called "Drones Is the Sky the Limit." What's what's this all about?
3: Well, drone technology is such a uh, it's everywhere today. I mean, we certainly know the both commercial military applications of it. So this is looking at both the history of this uh, of this technology as well as some of the ways that it can play in the future. Uh, it's going to have, we're going to ha- add some exciting elements to this exhibit that aren't part of the traveling aspect of it. We're going to be having some live drone demonstrations through cool. uh, subject matter experts who work in this technology. So it really is, I think, a critical subject to think about these days. You I mean, we, every day we're hearing some kind of news about drone technology. So uh, it's, it's a great time to bring this in. It's going to be interesting. You know, one of the things we really like to do is change our exhibits up so that people here in our community uh, or visitors who come frequently see something different every time they come. And so this is going to be uh, beginning at the end of May and we'll have it through the summer. So we're excited to bring that in.
0: And in the Nat Geo Theater, there's a, a series going, is this correct, the ISS Experience? Right. This Is this is a weekly, a new episode every w- week? It's not
3: not a new episode every week. It's still in production. This is episode one of a four-part series that we're oh, going to so begin showing. so screened
0: the episodes. I got gotcha. you.
3: So we're going to start with episode one. We anticipate having episode two uh, this summer, sometime maybe June time frame, and so we'll be playing both of those by this summer, both episodes one and two, but that's going to be, it is the largest production ever filmed in space so this was all filmed yeah, i saw, I saw the, the previews of it it yeah. looks amazing well yeah. and what's really neat is it has lots of huntsville touch points because uh, marshall Space Flight center's payload operations integration center of course manages all the payloads all the science aboard the international space station so they were heavily involved in the production aspects of this so a little shout out to the home team here as well right so, on
0: home team and also uh, in the Intuitive Planetarium, Mission to Mars, and Exploration of the Red Planet.
3: Right. So, you know, our planetarium is just second to none. We just recently got an upgrade just this week, and our planetarium staff is absolutely giddy. I mean, if you've been in it, you know it's extraordinary. Well, it's even more extraordinary than it was before. So, And, and
0: tell us about how social distancing, I know people ask yeah. me about this, and yeah. it, it seats roughly 220-something like that. 260-something. Yeah, 260-something, mm-hmm. and... Uh, you're at a third capacity or how do you, how does that work?
3: Yeah, we're at about a third capacity. It really kind of depends. It, our, our planetarium staff has gotten really good at puzzle making. So, you know, so if you, you walk in, yeah, you sit a group you, together.
4: Like Tetris. Sort of right.
3: Way. Sort of Tetris. Exactly. So if you come in and you're two people, uh, you're going to be seated differently than if you're a group of 10, say. So yeah. uh, we, people uh, are
0: coming out. Uh, are... Uh, we're selling out. Wow.
3: Get your planetarium tickets in advance because oh, we are selling out pr- pretty much every show.
0: So, With all the things that are happening at the Rocket Center and you're getting sort of back to full strength, you're working your way back with Space Camp, uh, you're bringing in new exhibits and things like that, how has the interactive nature of what you do changed when it comes to having young people, students, children come in and touch things Mm -hmm. and move things? Or uh, how has that affected the decision-making when it comes to choosing exhibits? Has the interactive nature of museums changed, do you think, forever?
3: I don't know if it'll be forever. Certainly, we this year has given us a lot to think about. I think we've all learned a lot of a lot of different things uh, this year, that some of which we will bring into the future. Uh, you know, I, and I think that, for instance, the exhibit that we have on display right now, uh, just for a couple of a few more days, uh, is called Dare to Explore, and we deliberately we designed that exhibit, and it is one that is uh, more visual. Uh, it certainly uh, does have some interactivity, but more limited in our activity. You know, we have to think about um, a lot more cleaning protocols, have to go into place. If you have an inner interactivity, you have to be thinking about those kind of things, and that's all good. You know, I think we've learned some things about that. We're busy. One of the things we've been really excited during March, during spring break, we were seeing crowds of up to almost 2,000 on the weekend. That's music to our ears. That means people are absolutely so anxious to get back out and to do things and to see things and to learn things and we are so excited to see people coming through the doors and enjoying what we have to offer and we're looking forward to a really busy maybe not quite what we would call back to normal summer but sure a whole lot closer than we have
4: been.
0: That was Pat Ammons with the U.S. Basin Rocket Center updating us on all things Rocket Center, including the Planetarium, the Sparks Lab, Space Camp, and Pathfinder, which you can now see on the ground in pieces. Thanks for tuning in The Public Radio Hour. Still to come in the show, a conversation with Huntsville City Councilman Bill Kling about the recent Huntsville Police Citizens Advisory Council report. We'll also pay a visit to the Alabama State Coral Championships. Stay tuned. We'll be right back after this break.
5: Twickenham Fest, Huntsville's summertime chamber music festival, had to be canceled last year due to COVID-19 concerns. I had a chance to catch up with co-founder and opera star Susanna Phillips recently to find out why they decided not to go ahead with the concerts last summer and what we might expect from the popular festival in the future. You can hear our conversation Friday in the 11 o'clock hour of Morning Blend. There'll be time for your requests too. Hope you can join us.
0: You are listening to the Public Radio Hour on 89.3, listener supported, Huntsville Public Radio. I'm Brett Tannehill. On June 1st and June 3rd of 2020, there was a violent confrontation between local law enforcement and social justice protesters who had gathered outside the downtown courthouse in Huntsville. Less than lethal ammunition was fired, tear gas was released, and people were arrested and injured. And there's been outrage. And now, finally, a public report documenting what happened. That report comes from the Huntsville Police Citizens Advisory Council and we'll be dedicating an entire public radio hour to breaking that down in the coming weeks. You can find a link to that report at WLRH.org. Look under Programs for the public radio hour. Huntsville City Councilman Bill Kling has stayed involved in the matter and plans to release his own list of recommendations and responses to what happened. We've been hosting a series of community discussions and conversations called The Hard Part regarding this issue, and Councilman Kling was gracious enough to sit down with producer Katie Ganaway as part of that series. Here's their conversation.
6: This is 89.3 Huntsville Public Radio. Today, I'm joined by Huntsville City Councilmember Bill Kling. He represents District 4 of the City of Huntsville. Welcome, Bill.
1: Welcome. Thank you.
6: Thank you for being here today. And today we are catching up a little bit on the events that have happened uh, since last summer when local law enforcement and protesters against police brutality clashed. Uh, Law enforcement fired tear gas and rubber bullets into the crowds that created shockwaves around the city and that had some lasting effects. Bill, I want to know what your reaction was to that sort of chaos that happened.
1: Well, uh, I was kind of surprised about it. Uh, I um, didn't know all of the circumstances. I think uh, what I've learned as a former news reporter is sometimes there are two sides of the issue and that need to be looked at. Uh, on one side, uh, I think that was very excessive to do something like that uh, on two occasions. And then on the other side, uh, there were uh, parade or protest permits that had been issued and the... Uh, Uh, Permits uh, specified that people were supposed to remain on the sidewalks, and in addition there was a time limit uh, for the uh, protest, and people were expected to disperse after the uh, protest had ended. So again, there are two sides, and hopefully there have been some efforts that have taken place since that time that we can uh, avoid that type of situation and get better understanding uh, and communication on both sides.
6: Right. And getting a bigger look at the big picture of it all, hearing from uh, citizens who came and spoke at city council meetings after those events happened um, and shared those experiences in public about the June 3rd protest, especially. I want to know what was going through your mind when you were hearing their personal stories.
1: Well, uh, I actually thought that uh, the uh, majority of the people Uh, were very committed to this community. They cared. They would come down repeatedly to city council meetings, so they weren't just there to come one time, complain, and then move on. Uh, Mm -hmm. And I respect the fact that uh, the commitment that people had to come out uh, to our meetings, uh, they shared some very strong testimony on their positions. And one of the things I did that kind of kept me from just sitting around waiting for the police citizens advisory committee report to come out uh, I decided to initiate contact with some of these people give them my telephone number and said I'm one of your elected officials I want to hear from you call me let's talk mm-hmm. and in the aftermath of that uh, I've had hour-long conversations uh, and, you know what are your ideas what can be done better And uh, through that whole process and repeated phone calls with individuals over and over again, I ended up eventually with eight individual people throughout the community, got some very good ideas. I got better input than I would have gotten if I'd contracted with a, quote, consultant uh, from out of town who's an expert in police departments. And uh, I felt almost like a kid in a candy store because there were so many good ideas that were put out and I've been able to kind of encapsulate those. And uh, I think uh, when things come out, uh, both from the Citizens Advisory Committee as well as uh, the report uh, that I've been able to compile with these eight outstanding citizens, um, I think there's going to be some very positive changes that will take place in what I think is overall pretty good police department. And uh, like any other city department, we always like to see what we can do to improve our our services to the community. Uh, We've done that recently with uh, the inspection department, the planning department, and I think we're in a process of doing that with the police department.
6: I want to go back to that and have you expound on that a little bit more, uh, a little bit later. But I do want to ask, at those meetings, it wasn't just people who were criticizing police. There were also people there who were in support of the police and uh, they were saying, you know, they were just doing their job. Protesters should have heeded HBD's warnings before the clash. What did you think of when you heard those folks' remarks?
1: There are two sides to, to an issue like this, and uh, I think that is basically what the Citizens Advisory Committee is focusing on. Uh, their report will deal with the uh, aftermath of the uh, two June protest. What I've been trying to do is basically look past that and look at, the approach of, all right, right now there's a lot of concern about the police department. What can we do to take the police department and make it good for the future? A couple ideas that I've heard from people had to do with uh, increased usage of mental health services and training, more community outreach, uh, working to rebuild community trust that's been hurt uh, by the two protests, and a great idea that one individual had mentioned – and it's right under our nose, more aggressive use of the Internet. The Internet should be used where there can be two-way communication. People uh, should be able to sign up for the um, weekly newsletters that uh, the police department puts out to council members and community watch chapters. And then also um, there should be uh, someone at the police department who can hear complaints, concerns directly from the community just by, you know, going to a certain uh, email area. We have challenges. There are challenges all over the country, but we can make good. And uh, hopefully when we come to June 2nd, uh, we can look back and say, during the one-year anniversary, there's been a lot of positive effort that is now underway to make the uh, police department even better and more responsive.
6: Now, you had the idea to talk with the HPCAC about starting this investigation?
1: Well, uh, basically with the input that uh, uh, we had received, myself and the other council members, uh, that just seemed like it would be a normal progression to allow that committee, which deals with uh, community relations, to uh, be tasked with uh, investigating very thoroughly uh, what mm-hmm. happened at the two June protests come back with their recommendations as far as things that need to be changed for the future and also uh, what their findings are concerning the, uh, the two protests and what right. had happened and what, what the problems were. So, mm-hmm. yes, we did that. Each council member has an appointee on that committee. In addition, uh, the mayor and the police chief each have uh, have appointments. The committee is very diverse, represents the community as a whole. And the individual whom uh, I had appointed, I think of as being a very independent, progressive person who will look at the facts and, you know, collaborate, work with the others on what the findings are and Mm -hmm. see what they come up with as far as changes that should take take effect in the future to avoid those types of uh, problems.
6: Would you describe yourself as a progressive
1: individual? I describe myself as more of a populist, and independent, progressive. I don't really like stereotypes, but uh, I'm the one guy who likes to get out there, look at things independently, and perhaps I'm even using my experience as a former WLRH newsman to look at both sides of the story, do what I think is right. In this situation, I thought, well, instead of just sitting and waiting for the Citizens Advisory Committee to come back with their report, uh, I want to go out and venture separately and uh, again talking with some very passionate people about how do we take what I think is a pretty good police department and mm-hmm. how do we improve it and for the future
6: and it's it's taken <clears throat> quite a while for the HBCAC to come out with this report um, you know we thought it was going to come out in March or sometime earlier than that but now it has a final, official date of April 22nd. Yeah. You know, a lot of people are frustrated about that. They've been waiting months and months to to hear their findings. I want to know your thoughts on the time it's taken for the official presentation date to be set, and if you have any insight into why it took so long.
1: Well, uh, they have purposely kept uh, the council members out of the committee's area. I have no idea why it took so long. Hmm. I do think that they are being very thorough and very diligent, Um, but I will just say that I'm very eager for them to come out with their report, and uh, when they do come out with their report, then I think right after that, immediately I can release uh, the report that I'd worked on with the eight citizens and uh, had wished it would come out earlier, but I'm very eager to see what they've come up with.
6: At those events, at the protests, June 1st and June 3rd of 2020 in downtown Huntsville, Multiple protesters have claimed that they were harmed or mistreated by local law enforcement, and that includes you know, April Grubb, uh, who was shot close range with a rubber bullet in the leg. Mm -hmm. Um, There was one protester who said that he knew a woman who suffered shoulder injuries and had to get surgery, and that was from excessive force by police. If the HBCAC were to come out suggesting that HPD or other law enforcement should be held accountable for these actions, would you agree with that?
1: Well, uh, they've been looking into this in great depth, and uh, I feel that the chips will fall where they may, and, uh, you know, that is fine. We have tasked this committee to come back with a thorough, independent report. Uh, Though there is one thing, and this is splitting hairs, but one thing that uh, I guess has not really been picked up too much the city police department does not have rubber bullets the huntsville police department was not the agency that fired the rubber bullets right and i'll just i'll just leave it at that but again we're going to let the committee come back uh, with their report knowing the people that i do know on that committee uh, i think it'll be credible whatever their findings are
6: and you've mentioned already that after their presentation on april 22nd you are going to share your own proposal, and that's going to be uh, on the topic of police reform.
1: That is correct.
6: And you've spoken with eight individuals, you said. Can you tell us a little bit of detail from that proposal?
1: Well, this is basically where I broke the ice. Uh, We had numerous uh, phone calls with each individual person. There were no meetings, uh, because with COVID, it's not really good to get people together. Right. But actually, with an hour-long telephone call, Uh, I can have a good conversation and really get in-depth thinking and ideas from each person. And if I had a meeting, and even if I had a two-hour meeting, and you've got eight people in the room at the same time, you're not going to get as much in-depth discussion one-on-one as you would by doing it separately. Uh, But basically, some of these ideas that have come out have been very good. The more emphasis... The new trend, I believe, the more emphasis should be placed on mental health services and training. Maybe uh, personnel would be put into the budget for the police department. Uh, Also, um, outreach, even though uh, we do have police officers that uh, interface with the uh, city community watch chapters, and uh, there have been certain programs that have been out there, such as the Ride with the Cop program, where a person can ride in a police car with a police officer for a three-hour period. There's more that needs to be done to break down the barriers and to have better community outreach. Rebuilding community trust, because I think uh, some people, their trust in the police department had been shattered because of being gassed uh, Mm -hmm. at the two protests. So there's going to be some things that will have to be done with that. And Then also, as I would mentioned, more aggressive use of the Internet. Uh, for two-way communication where a person can express a concern and have it go directly to a decision maker in the police department or the police chief directly. And then also where people can understand their rights, their responsibilities uh, in how to deal with a police officer if you're pulled over, how to uh, comply with the guidelines of a protest permit. We just need to get the a chance to step back and look and make some changes that will make things more effective for the future.
6: And what sort of support do you have among your peers on this proposal?
1: Well, uh, I don't really know. Uh, I guess being a former newsman, I kind of believe in something uh, called the Sunshine Law where we don't really have too much discussions outside of meetings other than, "Hey, how you doing, how's Mm -hmm. the family, whenever there's a social event or something like that. I do think that uh, from what I've seen at the council meetings, Mayor Battle and the other four council members are very, very interested in what the public has said. Others have taken notes on things. Some of the concerns that have been expressed uh, by the public, we've been able to address at the meetings because they didn't deal with the protest. I think uh, there's going to be a good movement among the six elected officials to take what I think is a pretty good police department and uh, work together to make it better and uh, update some things.
6: And I have one final question. In recent news, uh, we learned that about two dozen protesters who are arrested for disorderly conduct and failure to disperse on June 3rd, 2020, some of those protesters are having charges dropped from the city. And that's on the condition that they agree not to sue the city. So I want to know, Bill, what are your thoughts on this?
1: Well, I think this is something that the lawyers had worked out. Uh, My guess is it's uh, something between the city attorney's office and the attorneys that were representing the protesters. Uh, They have not really communicated that to to the council, so I'm just kind of making a guess that that was something that was worked out between the lawyers. But again, when you get lawyers involved, sometimes it's hard to figure things out.
6: And is there anything else that you would like to add today?
1: Well, uh, again, looking at both sides of the uh, picture, um, Huntsville is about the 29th largest land area city in the entire country. Uh, We have more land area that our police department would have to cover than uh, the city of Chicago, uh, St. Louis, Missouri, or Los Angeles. Uh, Of course, I'm talking about those cities without their respective suburbs. And we're doing all that with basically a police department that's uh, normal for a city with this population of Huntsville, which is roughly around 200,000. So they're, uh, they're kind of strained because they're patrolling and taking care of uh, such a large area. Uh, overall, day in, day out, uh, the police department has done many great things. Uh, there have been numerous occasions where um, someone who lived in a low-income neighborhood, whether it's a district I represent or another one, uh, was having a problem, was being bullied, drug dealers, an abusive neighbor, dogs barking three o'clock in the morning, and the police department stepped in on numerous occasions to offer protections and to help those folks. So that's why I see a glass of water as being half full. Between the protest and the CAC committee and between and what I've been working on with the committee I've been working with, I think we're going to see a lot of positive changes, things that can be improved. And I like the idea that we have a city government that uh, we're always self-evaluating. We don't uh, say everything's perfect. We look very frankly and get citizen input. What can we do to make things better? And again, when we get to June the 2nd, I hope that we can look back and say, well, a year ago, these things took place. Fortunately, uh, we are seeing some very positive energy in new proposals and new energy to make things better so we don't had the problems that we had in the past.
0: That was Huntsville City Councilman Bill Kling and producer Katie Ganaway talking about a new public report from the Huntsville Police Citizens Advisory Council regarding social justice protests in downtown Huntsville last summer. We'll end our show with these voices from the Alabama State Choral Championship, which gathered high school singers from around the state for a singing competition of epic proportions this week at the BBC here in Huntsville. Producer Dory Nutt grabbed the field gear and files this audio postcard.
5: This is 89.3 Huntsville Public Radio, and I'm Dory Nutt. One of the highlights of musical life here in the state of Alabama is the All State Choir Festival held each spring. This year the event came to the Von Brown Center right here in Huntsville and hundreds of talented young choral students gathered to make beautiful music together. I spoke with the organizers, directors and students who took part in this intense day of rehearsing and performing.
2: I'm Randall Fields, I teach choral music at Bob Jones High School in Madison.
5: And Randall, I know that you are president of the Alabama Vocal Association this year, so you're kind of heading up this whole endeavor. What's the best part of it for you?
2: I think the best part is that the students are actually able to participate in something again this year. We weren't sure that we would be able to do any singing this year at all, and now that we are able to sing together, um, it's it's been a wonderful experience for these students to be back together. Stacy Daniels, and I teach at Buckhorn High School.
5: Stacy, why do you think it's important enough for kids to get out of school to come to Allstate Choir?
0: It's just a great experience for all the students. Um, They get a chance to sing with some of the best singers in the state and work with a nationally known conductor. Just get to make music, especially this year when we haven't had those opportunities. So just to have this opportunity for today is just a great experience for the students.
5: My name is Zachary Banks. I am a choir director at Ramsey IB High School in Birmingham, Alabama. This is basically like the all-star game for choir. You know, you have the all-star game for football. Those kids go out and play against other kids from other schools, and they see people, their peers. This is the same thing for for choir. It's the all-star team. You must audition, you must be good, and you must know your craft in order to be here and participate. I am Margaret Heron, I am from Mortimer Jordan High School and North Jefferson Middle School in North Jefferson County. This is the one state event where choir singers, middle school and high school, have an opportunity to study high quality literature. They practice it on their own, they're selected by audition. This is the one time that they get together as an entire state and sing and make beautiful music from the smallest country school to the most affluent school, all these students Spend several days together, um, making beautiful music, and work with clinicians from around the world. So it's very important. Dr. Allred, you have an international reputation for excellence. How do you propose to achieve that in the short amount of time that you have with these kids? What's your secret?
4: To tell you the truth, I was really worried about what would happen today because normally at an all-state, I've done probably 25 other all-states, and you know you get three days to work on the music and really refine it and prepare the concert and they told me you have one day two rehearsals and then you got to do the concert So, for me uh, it was important to know that the students would be really well prepared on their music on the notes and rhythms so that I could do all of the refining and in the first five or ten minutes of the rehearsal I know what my day is going to be like (laughs) and today when I heard the first few few minutes I thought oh it's gonna be fine Uh, we're gonna be fine and I'll be able to work on all the little details of diction and musical expression and dynamics and style and they really responded well and it's been a joy joy to be here in Alabama
6: hi I'm Cassidy I'm from Madison Alabama feels really empowering to sing and I feel like I just get to be myself. I like seeing so many, I guess, faces from around the state, m- meeting so many
5: new people that all have, like, the same common interests as me. I'm Anna Grace Swindle. I'm from McCalla, Alabama. Anna Grace, how does it make you feel to sing? It's one of my long-lived passions that I've done all through my throughout my life. It's something that I hope that never goes away. What do you like about being here at Allstate Choir? This is my third year, and it's... Oh, just getting to see all the people that I've either met or new people that I meet. I love all the songs that we're doing.
2: My name is Parker Ragsdale and I'm from Alexandria High School.
5: What do you like about being here at All-State Choir?
2: It's to hearing all the amazing students from all over the state and how that there's still hope for music and all the people that love to pursue music like I do.
6: Hi I'm Amber Powell and I'm from Helena, Alabama. How does it make you feel to sing? It's one of my favorite things to do and it just makes me happy to hear that we can do it now during this pandemic and that there's unfortunately some people that can't do that but I'm grateful that I can
5: do you remember the first song you ever learned to sing probably
6: like the ABCs but (laughs) it got me here so I'm still going
5: Thanks to everybody at the Alabama All-State Choir Festival who took time to talk to me. You can tell that everyone was excited to be a part of this choral festival since so many activities involving singing have been curtailed during the pandemic. It only took one look at the erect postures of these high school students to see their earnest engagement and their love for singing. And then of course, you could hear their passion in every strain of the glorious music they performed. The future of choral music in Alabama is certainly bright with our hard-working choir teachers and their talented students leading the way.
0: Thanks so much for tuning in the Public Radio Hour, and thanks to all of our guests. You can find a podcast of this show at WLRH.org. Just look under Programs for the Public Radio Hour. See you next week.